0: Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold.
1: Our guest today is Michael Abramson, the COO of Exponential Fitness. At a young age, Michael was exposed to the fitness world from his father, David Abramson, who is a world champion powerlifter. Michael trained with some of the best coaches in powerlifting, making him a three-time national champion in USA powerlifting. Michael's accreditations include being president of the Student Bar Association in law school at UIC John Marshall, Tennessee State Fair Chair for the USA powerlifting, developing the immensely popular recurring event in Chicago called the Circle Sessions, and founding a thought leadership gathering called Elements Chicago. This love for training and drive for creating new environments led him to partner with Will Bartholomew and Dan Murphy at D1 training, DI training. No, D1. A D1. This love for training and creating new environments led him to partner with Will Bartholomew and Dan Murphy at D1 training. He worked at D1 for eight years as VP of Development and General Counsel, and later as president. He honed his business leadership skills there, leading D1 to Number 59 in the entrepreneur's top 500 franchises in 2018. Following D1, Michael took on the COO position of Exponential Fitness, which is the largest curator of boutique fitness brands in the world, owning eight different concepts with over 1,600 open locations and nearly 4,000 licenses sold. There, he focuses on infrastructure development and strategic partnerships. So, Michael, welcome to the Second Fan podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited that to be is, here.
1: That's quite the bio.
0: So it's been an interesting life. It feels like I've lived many lives in a lot of instances.
1: I'll bet. So so what are the brands that Exponential owns right now?
0: So from the top down, Club Pilates, which has about 600 open locations. Pure Bar, which has about 550. Cycle Bar, which is in the low 200s. Stretch Lab, which is just shy of a century. Row House, which is about 60, Um, AKT, which has 14 open, I think, and then Yoga 6, which is around 40 open. But Yoga 6 actually beat the record for the most sales of a brand in a single calendar year. Last year, they sold 400 some odd units in 12 months. So that's going to be a pretty quick one coming out of the gate.
1: Now, are you guys, I've been around the franchising space for years, are you guys doing a a plug and play model where you have your franchise sales team for one brand and then they move over and they work on the next brand or are they completely separate teams, you know, from sales and marketing and operations?
0: No, yeah. So they're, they're universal. Every one of our sales guys can work with any brand so and you know in the franchise world you deal with a lot of franchise brokers Mm -hmm. so we get a we get a healthy amount of organic traffic but ultimately the best qualified leads often come from franchise brokers so it becomes a relationship game and so the people on the sales team with the best relationships with those brokers they get the most leads they close the most sales and it's not always the same brand it can span the spectrum of eight brands. And what's become more and more common is people buying multiple brands at one one sitting. So rather than buying a three-pack of Club Pilates, they might buy Club Pilates, Stretch Lab, and Yoga 6 because they want to diversify their fitness portfolio and then create an expo village with their real estate setup.
1: That's interesting. It makes a lot of sense. I actually um, used to coach a company out of Scottsdale, Arizona, called Loud Rumor. And they do a yeah. lot of marketing for Do you know that team? Yeah, it's, we've used them in the past. Oh, cool. Yeah, they do a lot of marketing in, in and around your industry. But but they were talking about that same idea that people would acquire multiple brands in a city, and I guess that just gives the owners leverage, right? Instead of trying to, you know, have one brand spread over multiple cities, they take three or four. But um, do you well, allow them to? Do you allow them to go outside of your group at all?
0: Yeah, we're. I mean, they have non-competes in their agreements but uh, we're not rigid with it. Fitness fitness is fitness. There's not a lot of proprietary approaches, right? A squat is a squat, a row is a row. It's really more, we, we look at it and we're, we say there's three key things to having a successful fitness concept. You've got the programming, you have the marketing and you have the sales. So if you are great at marketing, you're gonna get people coming in, but if you can't sell them, your business is gonna die. If you can sell them, but your programming is shit, they're not gonna stay. So you need those three things. And other brands I don't think do it oftentimes as well as we do it. And interestingly enough, the whole idea of exponential was actually born out of the success of Orange Theory. So Orange Theory franchisees, loved their experience with OTF. They were hyper-successful, but then OTF sold out everywhere. And so they couldn't buy more Orange Series. And we didn't want to be in the same spot. And Club Pilates was our first. It was hyper-successful. And we realized, oh, we need more concepts so that we don't lose people to other franchisors.
1: That's really smart. I actually had the second command for Orange Theory. I think his name was Griff Long on as a guest Mm -hmm. about a year or so ago. But when I was I was the second in command at one god junk and helped grow them through their real massive growth phase in the first seven years, and right as I was leaving the organization, I was tell, telling the leadership team, like, we're effectively almost sold out. We're at 85 90% sold out. And they wouldn't believe me. The leadership team kept fighting me on it. And finally, I, I, when I left, they realized a year later I was right, that we had really hit that point where it becomes much, much harder to sell you know, Omaha, Nebraska, and one over, like we really needed more of a rifle-based approach to sell the last 20% of the location. You get
0: to those onesie, twosies, and you're having to make bad deals just to get them sold.
1: And it's more expensive to target a certain city to sell, right? When you get somebody who comes in and they just want to buy, and I've got six, which one would you like? When I have to sell that one, right, it's a little bit tougher. I actually saw one of your your row house locations, I think in Scottsdale as well. I think it's near one of my favorite um, Thai restaurants up there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I love I remember, Rojas. I remember the brand anyway. So what do you think is making besides the, the program, the marketing and the sales, what's making your brand so successful? Cause you've got some good, really good brands and some really good success around them. What's making them successful?
0: It's, it's the model. So for, so Anthony Geisler the founder. Anthony's got a serially successful entrepreneurship bent from, he had an online gaming solution years ago. He then uh acquired LA boxing with a couple of locations he grew that he sold it to UFC it became UFC gyms he moved out of there ended up getting into club pilates the whole concept around what we do is really mitigating the downside risk so all of our locations are about 2000 square feet doesn't matter the brand it could plus or minus a couple hundred And then they all run with about the same break even point, um, depending on the membership model and the tier market that they're in. And so you then take that common um, real estate piece which opens up a lot of inventory. And then the fact that you have eight brands sitting under the same roof that's constantly sharing knowledge with each other. As to what's working here? what's not working here? Who are you mm. partnering with in that market? that there's there's an accelerated learning curve. Um, and we I, no one's perfect. We make a ton of mistakes too, right? And so we, we try and own them. We try and make sure the other brands don't make that same mistake. And then we're able to also share vendors across our systems. And we know sometimes not every vendor is right for every one of our franchisors. But when it is, we then get to capitalize on that scale and we get things cheaper and faster. And then we get special attention from them. And hopefully our franchisees are getting treated like royalty when they're dealing with that vendor. So customer service and relationship is the key to healthy franchising. How,
1: how do you select your vendors? How do you make sure that you're picking the right vendors?
0: It depends on the category. Um, it's gonna be, we typically test them out in limited fashion. And then we start looking at what's their backend infrastructure. Can they support scale? Cause we don't want to introduce onesie twosies if we don't mm. have to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're forced to, especially in the construction world. Um, sure, yeah. But then when you get into retail, we've got a team that has 15, 20 years of retail experience. And so they are working with some of the top um, top brands out there and they are setting up great fulfillment relationships and they know they can scale, whether it's Lululemon or Balabans. You know, things like that. And then you get into the AV side. We use two or three brands there. We use primarily Platinum or MAE out of Florida. And we know from testing them and then growing them that they can handle our volume. Because in a non COVID year, we'll open between 500 and 800 locations. Wow. So we need, we don't wanna deal with new relationships in every market. So we try and create that consistency.
1: How do you, how do you onboard your franchisees and make sure that they're successful?
0: <laughs> it's, uh, we have a lot of, when you aggregate the number of franchise training and GM training uh, programs we've run. So we say pre-COVID, we were doing 76 education days a month at our corporate office, we are amassing this unbelievably large amount of experience under one roof in training franchisees and training their general managers and then mm-hmm. their sales folks. And so we do a lot of pre work with them online. We've got a strong learning management system. We stress the pre work significantly before they step foot in here because they're not going to get what they need out of the education if they don't do the Mm -hmm. pre-work then we have a very hands-on training process and we focus on those three key things of sales marketing and programming and making sure they understand those are the three things to be successful and then we have a really strong follow-up infrastructure so we have national sales directors VP of sales. Depending on the size of the brand, you may have you know six people in that in that sales sector, which is really op support. Because in fitness franchising, everything is sales related. And if you, and then we have education. So we have an accredited uh, system for cycling. We have an accreditation for stretch lab for we call them flexologists for club Pilates. We're probably either the largest or the second largest accreditor of Pilates instructors out there, and it's a 500 to 1,000-hour training program. So we're making sure they're equipped with the best instructors.
1: And are those instructors paying for the accreditation program as well with you?
0: Yeah, it'll be either them or the franchisees. And oftentimes, if it's the franchisee, the franchisee will have an agreement in place with their team member that should they leave within a certain amount of time, they need to be reimbursed for the investment they made.
1: So so as a franchisor, where do you make most of your money off of the franchise? I mean, I know some of this answer, but is it off the franchise fee? Is it off the royalty? Is it off of the licensing and the the services that you provide? Where do you make all your money or is it all three or?
0: Yeah, so you're looking, the recurring rev is where you make the money. So the royalty basis, so you. When you look at selling a franchise, you make almost no money with the way those commissions end up being structured, whether it's inside or outside sales guys and franchise brokers. 80% typically goes off the top right away. So if someone buys a 60,000 unit, we're making 12 grand on it, which is nothing, right? So our goal is get them open fast, get them open successfully and pre-sell their market to the point where they're hopefully cash flow even within 60 to 90 days we don't always hit that mark but that's that's the way our program is set up
1: you actually just touched on one one of the questions I had written down when you mentioned the, the pre-selling the market so so what marketing do you do on behalf of the franchisees and then how does that how does that structure how do you set that up
0: yeah so the in market marketing is twofold we have our own national campaigns that we run we have a really strong VP of analytics and marketing, uh, Krista Brown. We stole her from Drybar. She was VP of analytics and e-commerce there and before that at Two-Face Cosmetics. And we look at the data trends and then we also tie in with our data analytics platform. We use Buxton. Buxton's kind of like big brother. They have 75,000 data points on every household in the country and they geocode it. Yeah, I I love Buxton as a businessman. I hate it as an individual.
1: (laughs) Creepy as fuck as an individual. Right, but it
0: it helps us because it helps us identify a location that has the highest likelihood of success because it builds out your retail trade area and then creates mirror members. Then what we do is we take those analytics and we help our franchisee market directly to the mirror members versus just doing a shotgun approach. And then in addition to that, you have to do the ground approach where, yeah, as the franchisee, you need to get out and market, you need to kiss hands, shake babies, and get to know everyone, get people in the door. It can't just be digital, even though Mm -hmm. digital is the easiest to track. And so we're running our own ad spend through the marketing fund. And then we have direction for them for in-market. And then the way we really help them is, you know as well as I do, digital marketing can be a black hole of spending. Mm -hmm.
1: And so we have a digital
0: partnership program that we vet every digital partner we allow into our system to get API access, to know that they are high caliber, high results oriented, and they're charging market rates we don't set their rates. We don't set their contracts with the franchisees. We're just making sure they're not raping our franchisees and giving them no results.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially on the SEO side, I think can be the black hole of marketing as well for many of these right. brands, right? Paid search, right. at least is a little bit more scientific. You mentioned that you're using a learning management system in LMS to um, to, to the onboarding. Is there a certain platform that you like that, you, that has worked well in the franchising world?
0: We use WiseTail. Um, I didn't use, I used Frank connect when I was at D one, uh, Frank connect, Frank connect is great. It's a little bit, uh, archaic in its user interface, but it's a really robust system. Wise is much easier on the user interface. Uh, but it takes a lot more effort to set it up for exactly how you want it. Um, but we use wise for all of our brands.
1: All right. If you were a single unit, you know, gym or a fitness studio, could you give them kind of the top three things for them to be successful? And then secondly is, can you take, I, I and I, I wonder if it goes back to um, the program, the marketing the sales, but can you, can you do you have any lessons that you can really take out of the fitness space that other businesses in other industries could, could use and benefit from?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm naturally a, a relationship person. So when I look at business, to me, it's all about the team. And so, you know, aside from the sales marketing and programming, you have to have the right team. And I always use the analogy of, and I heard a great speaker, I'm stealing it from him say this, if you give a guy a spoon and tell him to dig a hole and you give a guy a shovel and you tell him to dig a hole, if the guy with the spoon has the passion for the digging and the guy with the shovel doesn't, the guy with the spoon's going to get the job done. And so you want that great team member positive attitude so that you have this phenomenal four wall experience versus a guy who is well credentialed but maybe doesn't have the same drive and focus. So, To me it starts with the team you can market the shit out of your location but at the end of the day when they walk in the building if your team is subpar you're not keeping them and you're probably not closing them on the sale either so uh, i'm a big team guy
1: how about on the sales side i mean you guys have definitely and i think you touched on it that if the if the marketing is great but your sales this sucks, then you just burn through all those leads. And then if your program is bad, it doesn't really matter as well. On the sales side, are there any tricks that businesses can, can focus on or not tricks, but maybe, you know, best practices?
0: Yeah, unload as much administrative pieces as possible to programs. There are so many great uh, software platforms out there that can allow your uh, team members to really focus on the relationship piece versus the, hey, when do I need to call this person back? When do I need to email them? You can have great automation, not just drip campaigns. There's there's now programs out there like Conversica with artificial intelligence that has artificial intelligence sales solutions that does a handoff to your in-studio person once they're ready to talk to a live member and or come in. And so you remove all those administrative components so that you can let your team in-house focus on two things, relationship development, because in boutique fitness we're a premium product. So they need to really feel good about who they're interacting with and then creating the best experience. So the best workout possible. If you do, if you let them focus on those two things, you're going to have a really successful location.
1: Interesting. I like the optimization and automation as you're taking some of the stuff off that is, is typically complicated for them, too, right?
0: Right. Uh, and, who and who wants to? Be? Yeah. And your brain's a terrible filing cabinet. And I find most of the people running the front desk of a gym, they're great, but they're young. And so they haven't learned enough yet to know how to prioritize, track, schedule. And so give them the tools to do that and they're going to be more successful.
1: Uh, I think about some franchisors over the last 30 years that have kind of really exploded in their growth and then they they're, 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 they kind of don't exist anymore. You think of, you know, a Quiznos or Curves. I don't know if Curves still exists, but, you know, massive rapid growth. How do you operate a business through the fast growth phase and then stay successful? Like after you've really sold all these locations and you got them all up and going, how do you make sure that you stay as a successful brand and that you deliver for these franchisees as well?
0: So there's, there's two things to look at. One, I used to know the head of development for Quiznos when they went through that massive growth, their issue was they were selling to people they shouldn't sell to. And so when they were opening, if they got open, they were not able to stay open long. And so they closed and Quiznos, I don't know anything about them, but they didn't, They didn't take them over and help them redeem the location, get it to a new buyer. And so you had you had a great shrink shrinkage rate. The the other side of it is you need to have this intensely loyal partnership with your franchisees. Mm. In the entire time, Anthony, our founder has been franchising. We have never had a single location close ever. And it's not because every location wins it's because we view them as partners and we have a high moral obligation to those franchisees that have their life savings invested in it. And I'm talking as far back as LA boxing, never letting
1: any of those close. That's a massive, massive, massive success.
0: Yeah, it it takes (laughs) a lot of effort to get it done. Because you're taking a distressed franchisee who is not exactly happy with you oftentimes, and it could be at their own doing, but you're the franchisor, it's your playbook, they bought into your system to be successful, even though there's no guarantee of success, and you're trying to help them salvage a bad situation. And we've gotten really good at that, because we do view it as our, our own personal partnership, not just Sorry, man, it didn't work out for you. Close the doors. We write you off, even though we because we've got four thousand units sold. We don't. We don't view it that
1: way. That's a massive success. I mean, most franchisors don't come anywhere near that. I remember speaking twenty years ago to Fred DeLuca, who was the founder of Subway, and we were at the International Mm -hmm. Franchise Exposition together, and we were talking at the bar one night. And I said, you know, how do you deal with franchisee disputes? And he goes, Oh, that's easy, litigation. I was like. (laughs) <laughs> like what? Like he didn't even, and he wasn't kidding. Like he just, right? Yeah, we have a problem with franchisees. We sue them. I'm like, or oh, they sue us? I'm like, well, really? They had 700 outstanding litigations with franchisees. It, if you, it, it doesn't even make sense. Litigate.
0: We solve everything pre-litigation, and we're not afraid to. I mean, if you talk to Anthony, Anthony is very aggressive. I'm an attorney by trade. I did litigation for years. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with it. Litigation is a waste of time and money for everyone in almost every instance, especially in franchising disputes because the franchise agreements are so onerous and one-sided and if you're if you happen to be lucky to find a procedural flaw in the way they sold it to you, great, good for you, but you have a high bar to get over. We don't want to be punitive in our relationships, even when they've gone sour. And so we always try and find some sort of solution that's pre-litigation. And so, you know, outside of a couple of issues with founders of our brands, we haven't really had any franchisee litigation. I don't know if we're still at zero, but we're pretty close to zero.
1: That's probably one of the reasons why you're there, why you have had the success is because of that mentality or that, that focus around, um, you know, your, your, your franchisee's success, your franchisee's profitability, your franchisee's engagement. Pretty strong. Yeah. On, on, the, on the operational level of being a franchisor, are there lessons that the average, you know, company can learn from as well? you think you do things better as a franchise or than some businesses do, or that you do things differently than some businesses can learn from?
0: I think the, probably the key thing is don't overbuild what ends up happening a lot of times. And I've seen this in past companies I've been involved with and companies I've consulted with. Everyone wants to build the Taj Mahal because they think the nicer and sexier it is the more likely you are to be successful in business and that's just not the case and so if you look at our locations it is we use very nice finishes but it is stripped down as far as amenities go we don't really do showers right because we find boutique fitness people don't really use them very small crowds Yep. so we keep small lobbies everything should be dedicated to the revenue generating space, which is primarily your training space. And so take the, take the position when you're building out your location as to, is this dedicated to generating revenue? And if it's not, do you actually need it? Because then it's a marketing expense.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. Do, do any of your brands have different, like completely different cultures from the other brands that you own or are most of the cultures similar?
0: they are all completely different. So this was probably the biggest learning lesson I had coming in. You know, I, I, screwed the pooch when I first started here because I came in, I had a great run at D1, loved my time there. It was one brand, tons of experience. And then I come into an environment that exponential actually sits under the brands. We view the brands as the lead elements, not exponential. And every brand has its own KPIs, its own lifestyle feel. And so I thought it'd be a little more cogent when mm. I came in, and it wasn't. And it's still not. And it's not by design because the brands all have different, they attract different people. Yeah. you know. And so Pure Bar, which is an immensely popular lifestyle brand, very different than the people that go to Club Pilates. You've got almost the same studio count, and they both drive tremendous revenue, but Club Pilates, that is an upper echelon training environment that we've made accessible to the general public, whereas Pure Bar is heavily lifestyle oriented. And so it's very different in the way you treat the franchisees and members.
1: Wow, interesting. How about in terms of the, the leadership teams that you're building out for these organizations? Do you look for franchising experience when you build them out or do you just look for great leaders? What are, what are your thoughts around that?
0: No, we absolutely look for people with uh, number one, fitness experience and then number two, franchising experience. The, the reason being, especially on the fitness side, fitness is so different, especially in boutique than a lot of other industries. It's not like you can take a Chick-fil-A operator who's got great customer service and probably was hyper successful and plug them into the fitness world because it's a completely different mindset, customer base, result outcome you're looking for. Mm. And then, yeah, franchising is always always, uh, something important because you need to understand that you don't own these businesses, so you can't just – it's not a might makes right. You don't just say – I declare it from the top and now everyone has to do it because every one of them has an opinion and their opinion deserves to be heard. And you need to now work with them to understand is the decision I'm making actually going to benefit real life operations, not just me here in the, in the office.
1: That's interesting too. I like that approach and that mindset around it as well. So we're sitting talking right now. It's the early part of November. The election just happened. Um, we don't even have the results yet, but I'm curious, you guys are in the fitness space and have 1600 plus locations all over the world or all over North America.
0: Uh, we're in 11 countries, uh, 1600 domestically. We probably have 2030 internationally. We're in Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, uh, Germany, England, uh, Australia, I, I, a few other countries, that I, I can't
1: remember now. Okay, so you've clearly had to have had an impact with this whole COVID and, and being in the fitness space has been pretty hard hit. How have you guys had to work around that? What have you done and how are you doing?
0: We did a lot of praying. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, first thing we did was we we circled the wagons, right? we started doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday um, total system webinars led by Anthony because we needed them to have a guiding voice and believe that we as the, the franchisors were actively working in their best interest. We then took an approach and said, what are the key expenses that we need to help them manage knowing that revenue would be dramatically impacted. And so our VP of real estate, Adam Pennington, just started hard charging at all of his relationships with the top REITs in the country and setting up um, global deals with them. And we found the, the REITs to be very receptive and created a playbook for if you didn't work with a REIT, how do you deal with your local landlord? And then making our entire real estate team available to get on the phone with their landlords to help them negotiate abatements, deferments, et cetera, because that was the largest fixed cost that was coming no matter what. Right. So, and then shortly after that, we pivoted to really pushing our digital side and then allowing our franchisees to participate in the digital digital revenue development So live streaming classes through our platforms, doing revenue shares through our corporate video on demand programs. So we started looking at all the ways we could incrementally help them knowing there's no there's no one solution that's going to solve everything. Everything is incremental.
1: Was there any thought of having a digital platform and a digital sports play prior to COVID or did this all happen because of COVID?
0: No, it was already in the works. So Club Pilates and Pure Bar already had a program, but we were in the process of the next iteration of the platform. And so we accelerated its launch because of COVID. And then we released it to all of the brands, which we were gonna do in a much more phased approach, just saying, you know what? Perfection is the enemy of profitability. We need to get going and we need to equip our franchisees. We also have a great relationship with ClassPass. Um, I deal with Fritz Landman a lot. He's their CEO. They've been an unbelievable partner through all of this, and they offer to our franchisees, use ClassPass as your streaming platform if you need it. We won't charge you anything. There's no commission. Just get on there. Use it to, to do your live streams until you get the corporate uh, platform set up.
1: Really? So
0: we really leveraged our relationships to try and help that.
1: Was cycling really the first kind of group fitness that was being done online? Or was there, was there more? Uh, no, Pure
0: Bar was probably the first because Pure Bar is very equipment low as far as what you need. You can do pretty much all of it at home with a chair okay. Okay. and some bands. Um, but Cycle Bar got, definitely got a lift because Peloton. Peloton's been in the news. Everyone's excited about Peloton.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so it just naturally gravitated. And then we had some franchisees come up with the idea of let's actually rent out the bikes in our studios to our members if they want to take them home and and they started renting out their equipment. Me as an attorney, I had a lot of heartburn over that, but at the same time, going, that's a creative way to generate revenue, it's not being used otherwise, and you get them to stay in touch with your brand during this downtime.
1: It's not a bad idea, yeah. It's interesting just, just to see the creativity that came out of it. I guess it goes back to that old adage, right? That necessity is the mother of invention. So yep, we've had to yep. kind of figure it out. So, how about yourself in terms of your growth? You know, over the years, how have you had to grow as a leader? How have you had to grow as a COO?
0: So, I have this unbelievably pain in the ass way of speaking, where whatever I say, I say it with authority, and so people just naturally believe what I'm saying is true. And I'm I'm exposing myself here, right? I don't know everything. When I say something, it's as though it's gospel. Um, I've really had to learn better how to communicate in a more accessible manner and not such a domineering manner mm. so that I'm bringing people into it and making them partners in what we're doing versus just a command and control style of leadership, Yeah, which is my natural bent. Um, and I've been, I've had executive coaches one of which actually literally drove me into therapy. Hey, we got to the point where we were done and, or we, and he just said, I can't help you anymore. You need to actually see a counselor.
1: <laughs> was it intentional, the command and control style, or was it just because you've got that big voice and the you know the big physical size that, that it came off that way?
0: No, I I think it's just my my natural behavior. So I grew up, my dad is as alpha male as they come. He was a world champion power lifter. He then got into handmade knives, became one of the best knife makers and sheath makers in the world. His best friends are some of the top close quarters combat instructors. So I grew up with them. Now he does professional arm wrestling. So it's like this type of mentality has been bred into me. And then my love of training, you always have to be aggressive. And so this discipline and aggression was just part of every bit of who I am. And so when I spoke, I always spoke aggressively. Mm. And I had a lot of friends around me that had to just educate me on, you're going to yield fruit, but it may be bad fruit because of the way that you're communicating with the people. And so I, I call it the vortex of dysfunction. You know, Steve jobs had the reality
1: distortion
0: field and I, the CD underbelly of that is the vortex of dysfunction. Cause you, okay churn and burn people out.
1: Where have you burned out over the years or have you burned out?
0: I, I, I haven't burned out. I, I love working and I went into specifically with D1. I talked to my wife and I said, I think this is going to be a great opportunity because I was moving from private practice as an attorney to in-house with D1 and it married two passions, me as an attorney and then training. And the funny thing was, I don't, re- I don't watch sports. I don't really f- pay attention to sports. And we worked with all these famous pro athletes. So it was like a running joke. And I talked to her and said, I'm going to be working a lot of hours. And I really want to because it's a good opportunity. But do you have the permission to pull the cord at any time? If you think this is detrimental to me, my health or to our relationship, and I'm not seeing it, without question, you have permission to say, it's done. And I will, I'll quit tomorrow. And, and I meant it. And so that's how I've approached everything. And I've yet to burn out where I get disenfranchised, however, is I'm a high loyalty guy. And if I find that people are not making decisions in the best interest of the company, and it's for their personal ambition. It doesn't oh. matter who they are. It yeah. could be the owners, could be team members, could be people that report to me.
1: You lose parts. I,
0: Yeah, I get very frustrated and, and I get disenfranchised. And so then we have to reestablish that, that trust element so that yes. we're truly
1: a team. That's cool. All right, if we're to go back to your 21-year-old self, 22 years old, you know, you're graduating college, maybe you haven't gotten, maybe you're coming out of law school, so let's give you a 24-years-old, 25-years-old. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give yourself back then that maybe you know now, now you know it to be true, but what do you wish you'd known back at that time?
0: Be open to learning more things. I've always been, It learning has always come easily to me, and I've always kind of been, ahead in education. And so I never had to put in a lot of effort for it, at least back then. And so I really look at it and say I did not capitalize on opportunities where I could have learned way more. I've always been great with relationships. It's a numbers game. All of my life success is tied to the people around me. It's it's almost never about me. It's the people I'm working with. And so I now wish that, oh, I look at it. I had a mentor that brought me into this. I should have dug in more because I'd have a different level of competency now, which brings more wisdom. So really seek that. It
1: makes sense. I get it. I was not the smart kid. I I struggled with guys like you that it all came easy to. (laughs) Michael Abramson, the COO for Exponential Fitness. Thanks so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command Podcast. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. That was great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.